Good morning, everybody. You know, one of our my favorite things that we see happening in the church is this tacit denial of basic Catholic dogma, the most uncomfortable dogma of them all. And that uncomfortable dogma is that outside of the church, there is no salvation. That was softened, of course, in the years leading to the council. But once upon a time, in the time of Pope St. Pius X, Pope Pius XI, Benedict XV, and all the pre-conciliar popes, ecumenical dialogue was essentially prohibited. The only kind of ecumenical dialogue that really existed was to help clarify doctrinal errors and misconceptions of them held by those who were flirting with the idea of coming home to Rome. And I'll discuss one such group here briefly as we go over the various articles covering our news story today. But mostly there was no participation at the, you know, the World Council of Churches by the Catholic Church in those days. And today, thankfully, that still doesn't happen, but it may as well, given the behavior of Rome, the behavior of important prelates like Cardinal Koch, who was one of the main instigators of this sort of prayer meeting that Francis had publicly with Arch Layman Welby from uh, the Anglican Communion. And this has caused a big stir online, and as it rightly should, what is the point of being a member of the Catholic Church and having trying to live according to the rather hard teachings of the faith if from the, the behavior of our ecclesiastical leaders, you can find salvation through other means other than the sacraments established by our Lord and living according to the teachings of the church that he established? What would be the point? And therein lies the problem. See, there's an old dogma, extra ecclesium, nulla salis, and it used to actually mean something. And it was uncomfortable. It was the hardest dogma of them all because it meant that people that we in our hearts believe to be good people were in very real danger of not entering the gates of heaven at when their time comes because they were not in communion with the church. It's a complicated dogma, has a lot going into it. But in the aftermath of Vatican II, it, be, it kind of became meaningless. The membership in the church was expanded to such a degree that really it was just membership through baptism and profession. That was about it. A profession of faith in our blessed Lord. If you read what people had to say before the council on that, you saw that there was a hot debate on this. Um, some prelates went are said to have gone too far in the other direction. Father Feeney comes to mind. Um, but what we have now in practice is not recognizable in the church. After all, if, again, if you can have a reasonable hope to enter heaven when your time comes to stand before our Lord by merely being baptized and professing faith in him and then living in some vaguely defined way of being a nice and good person, then what's the point of, of being a member of the church that has the hardest teachings on morality and personal behavior, what's the point of being a member in that? There's, there is none. The, this ecumenical dialogue or ecumeniacal dialogue, as I typically call it, was on full display this week. Um, right now we have for another couple of days going on in Vatican City, a the sort of the week for Christian unity. So it's a nice concept. The church should be united under the banner of the, of the Holy Father. It absolutely has to be. Our Lord hoped that we would be one. He prayed that we would be one, knowing full well that there would be 
that schisms would be something that the body of Christ would deal with practically from the beginning of the church. And so we had this fantastic story that comes to us for, for some context. Let's go to Catholic Family News. They do a very good job, I think, of explaining the big beginnings of this problem. So let's zoom in a little bit here for everyone. I normally have that taken care of ahead of time. Um, disclosure, I write about, I write an article once a month for Catholic Family News, just full disclosure, and I do get compensated for that just to get that out there for transparency's sake. But here's the headline from Matt Gaspers. Anglican Eucharist, in quotes, in Roman Basilica, false ecumenism on display. True ecumenical dialogue is to help clarify misconceptions of what the church teaches and to help demonstrate that the theological positions held by other self-described Christian groups are erroneous so that they can then come home to Rome in full communion with the church, with the access to the sacraments, rejecting past errors, all that stuff. False ecumenism is this sort of vague sort of feelings-based, well, we all love Jesus, so it's all okay things. Our Lord reminds us that not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the gates of heaven. It's something to remember, especially in our own lives, by the way, if we get all so full of ourselves that we tend to become pharisaical in our outlook. Oh, look at how great we are. No, there, always remember that. Don't let yourself, this is like the hint of the truth when Francis talks about triumphalism, when he used to talk about that, was, you know, you there's some element of truth in that. You can get so puffed full of your own of your own ego because you got you know you were given the gift of faith and being the gift of finding yourself in the church that our Lord established that you can lose sight of just your own sinful state. It's something we should always remember. But here's some context: article was published on the 25th of January, just a couple of days ago. So from that article, quote. Today in Rome, Justin Welby, the Anglican quote-unquote Archbishop of Canterbury, more accurately Archlayman, since Anglican orders are null and void, was allowed to celebrate what Vatican News called, quote, a sung Anglican Eucharist in the Basilica of St. Bartholomew, the titular church of none other than Cardinal Blaise Supich. Michael Haynes, senior Rome correspondent for LifeSite News, reported that Welby thanked, quote, Pope Francis especially for having granted permission for the service. This, quote, Anglican Eucharist, reminiscent of the one which took place last April in the Basilica of St. John Lateran, the Pope's Cathedral Church, was anticipated by a celebration of Evensong, that's the Anglican Vespers, in St. Peter's Basilica on Tuesday evening with full Vatican approval, the same as in 2017. These Protestant services were then capped off by and, quote, ecumenical Vespers held this evening, January 25th, Rome time, in the Basilica of St. Paul outside the walls, during which both Pope Francis and Justin Welby preached. All these services are part of, quote, a week-long summit of ecumenical discussion and pilgrimage to be held in Rome and Canterbury from 22nd to 29th, January 2024, Vatican News explained earlier this week. Quote, as they visited sacred sites in Rome and Canterbury, the Anglican and Catholic bishops will pray, reflect, and learn from each other. The goal is to discuss ways to grow together in witness and mission in the world. The summit coincides with the International Week of Prayer for Christian Unity, which is held annually from January 18th, the traditional Feast of St. Peter's Chair in Rome, to January 25th, the Feast of the Conversion of St. Paul. Whereas the modern Week of Prayer for Christian Unity is rooted in the false ecumenism condemned by Pius XI in Mortalium Animos, which I have the full text of on this channel if you want to hear it, its predecessor, known as the Church Unity Octave, or 
chair of Unity Octave, was initiated by two American Episcopalians with the express purpose of praying, quote, for the return of non-Catholic Christians to the Holy See. Paul James Watson and Lurana White, co-founders of the Society of Atonement, held the first octave of prayer in 1908 and then converted in 1909, bringing their Episcopal religious order and many others with them, end quote. So the groups who started the modern sort of church unity stuff were Episcopalians who became Catholic the year after they started it and brought much of their flock with them back into full communion with Rome. That is the difference between now and then. Instead, now we have the we all like Jesus so kumbaya stuff going on. The original group prayed for Christian unity and then returned their pastoral flock to the unity with the church. They became Catholic. While this nonsense done in Rome involved no call to unity and anything other than feelings and some generic sense of brotherhood. And I'm becoming increasingly wary and really tired of hearing about brotherhood from Francis. Brotherhood, brotherhood, brotherhood. We saw this with the Abu Dhabi Declaration, where we were told that all of a sudden, groups out there who overtly deny the divinity of our Lord are suddenly essentially following the same God, which is weird. That's nothing the church has ever taught. Or that groups who say some really, frankly, really wicked things about our Lord are apparently our brothers now. Like, I, I don't understand this, and I don't understand the literally millions, if not billions of Vatican dollars poured into the building of a religious compound, essentially, in Abu Dhabi, so that all three groups can engage in their quote-unquote worship together at the same time. This stuff would appall Pope Leo XIII, because he was the one who, and I'll go over that here in a minute, declared unequivocally that Anglican holy orders are null and void. But here we go. It gets actually worse than just a prayer servants. See, one group, we, we Francis is now commissioning schismatic pseudo-bishops to work for their false Christian unity and some kind of mission work. This was a pretty big deal when it happened, and it hardly got any comment from anybody. Commissioning is not ordaining, but it is recognizing the validity of their posts, and that's a big problem, especially when we're talking about the fact that the Anglicans have consecrated bishopettes, basically. Okay. You know, the, the lady bishops, they have those now. So there has been some debate about the Anglican holy orders being valid because some of their priests quietly go and get ordination or consecration from either Eastern Orthodox bishops or quote, Western Orthodox bishops, or from old Roman bishops or others who still have a valid consecration and valid ordination uh, line going back to before those groups went to schism. But all of that debate should have been settled once they opened ex the, once they embraced the deaconette issue we're seeing in the Synod of Sin now, or bishopettes even, priestettes. Once they went there, the whole debate should have been over. Their ordination and consecration practices became unequivocally null and void, even though Leo XIII invoked the power of the papacy to say that they were null and void in an apostolic document he wrote back in the 1880s. But here we have this from the USCCB. The USCCB have been reported on this also. So we get this wonderful headline, 
Anglican, Catholic bishops travel, pray, work together. Pairs of Catholic and Anglican bishops from 27 countries were commissioned by Pope Francis and Anglican arch layman Justin Welby to undertake joint initiatives. The pairs included Episcopalian Bishop John Bauschmidt of Tennessee and Romanian Catholic Bishop John M. Botian of the Eparchy of St. George in Canton, Ohio, co-chairs of the Anglican Roman Catholic Consultation USA. There is actually organizations that exist for to try to have the groups work together. And if the whole point of that such organization is to clear up doctrinal errors and to help bring them home to communion with Rome and end the Anglican Catholic schism, I am all for it. But the best example of that is the Anglican Ordinariate, which was because there's a not quite unspoken, but it's a very downplayed problem going on in the Anglican Church right now. And that's many of their bishops and their priests are not liking the direction that they're going that their communion is going in and they become catholic many of them getting reordained and becoming catholic priests and, and maybe eventually bishops i'm reminded of the story of saint john henry newman i know many of you aren't fans of cardinal newman but when he he, he started out as an anglican priest he was an anglican theologian one of the most well-regarded and then he became catholic and he entered the catholic church as a layman Two years later, he was ordained a priest and eventually became a cardinal. But when he did that, his career and public reputation was gone. He paid the price for it, but he paid the price because he understood that the Catholic Church was the church founded on the rock of Peter. And he has a lot of things to say about false ecumenism. He does. And even if you don't like the things he said about doctrine, development of doctrine and such, he is a very, he was a very strident critic of ecumenical dialogue, and for good reason. But among the among the bishops on this commission were or that were commissioned by Francis were lady bishops. So, from the USCCB's article on this quote, acknowledging that many of the bishops present live in situations of poverty and strife, the spiritual leader of the worldwide Anglican Communion told Catholic and Anglican bishops that they had a responsibility to work together to preach the gospel to bring hope and healing to the world. We must look outward. We cannot continue as the church. What does he mean by the church? Because there's two. There's the church, and then there's their parody of the church that he's the head of. Anyway, to be those who are obsessed with what is going on amongst us, said Anglican Arch Layman Justin Welby of Canterbury during his homily January 25th at an Anglican Eucharist celebrated in the Catholic Church of St. Bartholomew on Tiber Island in Rome. Coming directly from a private meeting with Pope Francis, the Archbishop began the liturgy by thanking the Pope for allowing him to celebrate the Anglican service in a Catholic Church. The Archbishop was speaking directly to pairs of Catholic and Anglican bishops from 27 nations who were in Rome for the first half of the Growing Together, a week-long summit of ecumenical discussion and pilgrimage. The bishops were in Rome January 22nd to 25th, and they were scheduled to travel to Canterbury, England, January 26th to 29th. During a prayer service that evening, Archbishop Welby and Pope Francis formally commissioned the pairs of bishops for joint initiatives in their homelands. The summit was organized by the International Anglican Roman Catholic Commission for Unity and Mission, a body established in 2001 to promote common prayer and joint projects to de demonstrate concretely how the theological agreements the churches, what does he mean by churches? There's only one church, have made also have practical implications in witnessing together to the Christian faith, end quote. One of the things the church has expressly forbidden is public participation in worship and prayer with schismatic groups, with, with groups that are not frankly, not Catholic. It's one of the things the church has prohibited 
going back to at least the Reformation and well before that, public. This doesn't mean you can't say grace with like your Protestant family members or whatever. It doesn't even mean that you could, you, it means you, you can go to like weddings and things as long as you don't participate in any worship there. Although my understanding is Protestant weddings don't typically involve worship. Don't typically, I'm sure there are groups who do, but private things you can do, but you can't do participate in public things. And this is by definition going to be a public project. It's forbidden by the church. This is where we go back to what Leo XIII had to say. See, he had declared that Anglican holy orders are null and void. And while some people debate that now, their practice of expanding ordination to the way, I mean, they're the model for ordination that the synod of sin is calling for, for deaconettes and priestesses and things. That ended that discussion. At least it should have. See, Pope Leo XIII ruled definitively on this in his Apostolic Curie uh, encyclical, which I have not yet recorded for my channel, and I really should do so. But it was issued in 1896, not 1886, like I said a minute ago. The USCCB itself addresses the reasoning on this in an article on their website, although that article lays out the Catholic case for and then undermines it later in the piece. So I'm not going to bother with that part where they start talking about, you know, how people are now revisiting the subject to see if their holy orders are valid. Once they expanded ordination, it should have ended that question entirely. But here is what the U.S. bishops have to say on that. And yes, I do have that article here for you. So I'll pull that one up next. The U.S. bishops do, a, they do a very decent job of explaining all of this pretty well. So what they have to say on this is, quote, Pope Leo's letter of 1896 is the heart of this 1966 exchange because it laid out the doctrinal basis for the official Roman Catholic rejection of the validity of Anglican ordained ministry. The ultimate judgment of Pope Leo XIII is that Anglican orders are, quote, absolutely null and utterly void. Leo XIII asserts that the Roman see has always treated Anglican orders as null and void whenever the question has arisen in practice, and that this policy of non-recognition could be traced back without break to the period of the Marian restoration of the Roman Catholic Church in England in, from 1553 to 1558. Apostolica Curie interprets the instructions sent by Popes Julius III and Paul IV to the Roman legate in England, Cardinal Pole, as stated explicitly that those ordained in the Church of England must be absolutely reordained to become Roman Catholic priests. This is the position of Apostolic Curie in 1896. The exclusion of the concept of sacrifice from Eucharistic worship in 1552 signified that the Church of England did not intend to ordain bishops and priests in the way that such ordinations had taken place before the Reformation in the Catholic Church in England. The exclusion of a sacrificing priesthood nullified any Anglican intention to do what the Catholic Church does at an ordination. End quote. And there is sort of the crux of the problem. The famously, you can it, people sell Angli the uh, joining the Anglican Church to people, as in uh, if you have an opinion on something about theology, you will find some place in the Anglican Church that welcomes you. It's um, giving an example of this, much like in the Catholic Church, the African uh, Anglican the Anglican Church in Africa is much more orthodox than what's going on in England, to the point where they don't even re recognize Welby as their head. The ecumenical dialogue that I would support would be to have the Catholic bishops of Africa work behind the scenes with the African Anglican bishops and to get them to come home to Rome. That's what I would support completely because it's out, because everything I've ever read about the, the Anglican church in Africa is that it is much more truly Anglo-Catholic than almost anything anywhere else in the world. They are much more orthodox on key things. But of course, you have those theological dis uh, disputes.
that goes back to Apostolic Curie and all the way back to the 16th century, the lack of a sacrificing priesthood. Now, I'm sure I will get some former Anglicans here who say, well, my priest believed it was, a, it was a representation of the sacrifice. And that's fine. But the problem you run into is that is not what, when you, when a bishop ordains a priest, they are ordaining a priest with the intention, the bishop's intention is that the priest will do what the church teaches. And if the Anglican church is not teaching what the church, Catholic church teaches, it, it nullifies the ordination. That's the problem. And yes, I am aware that set of contests have said the same thing about uh, Novus Ordo ordinations because it goes down to the intent of what is being ordained. Now, I'm not sure the set of a contest critique is applicable here, but I know people are going to say that. Inappropriate post above noted. Okay, going to take a here. Take a brief here to see what there's an inappropriate thing. Because I do try to keep my um, things here pretty well. I try to keep things here pretty, control what goes on here. I'm not seeing anything, so uh, I'm not sure what you mean, Ray. But uh, thanks for the heads up in case I missed it. But this is this problem with what we're seeing now going on with uh, Francis and the Anglicans isn't even limited to this. See, it was also revealed that Francis and Archlayman Welby participated in a so-called Christian cedar meal during Lent. This practice is actually forbidden by any kind of traditional Christian. The cedar meal separate, celebrates the Passover in anticipation of the coming Messiah in accordance with the old law. Do you understand why that's a problem? As Catholics, we have a Passover meal every single day if we want it and can actually in our in the proper disposition to receive it. It's called the Eucharist at the Holy Mass. See, the, this cedar meal is a forbidden practice. It was anyway until the modernists came to power in the 1970s, when suddenly ecumenical dialogue took priority over any form of theological coherence or even fidelity to Christ. The cedar is traditionally celebrated in anticipation of the coming Messiah. Except we know that the Messiah was born on Christmas Day 2,000 years ago and sacrificed himself on the cross at Calvary. The Messiah has already come, and he will come again. But the cedar meal is not, is not being offered in anticipation of our Lord's second coming. To practice that meal is to deny the reality of Easter. I doubt that's ever crossed Francis's mind, though, since ecumenical dialogue is the biggest value in the Catholic Church today. As Francis himself said of the false Eucharist offered by Archlayman Welby at St. Bartholomew's, he said, quote, Only love which does not appeal to the past in order to remain aloof or to point a finger, only that love which in God's name puts our brothers and sisters before the ironclad defense of our own religious structures will unite us. He said that. What he's saying is unity will only come if we have no principles. And he said that positively. We have no, not only no principles, but no actual allegiance to what the church has taught on the validity of these ordinations. He actually was denouncing those of us who point out these things, that the church forbids common public prayer with schismatic heretics, public prayer meaning public worship or things that could cause scandal, like allowing the spiritual children of one of the most notorious public heretics in church history to use St. Bartholomew's to offer their false Eucharist. Remember, their holy orders are null and void according to Pope Leo XIII. And that has never been rescinded by a future pope making a good theological argument for it, which would be the something a pope has the right to do. Although it would be fascinating to see what the consequences would be. 
<laughs> don't give him any ideas. Right. Yeah, no, I don't want to. I I don't care how to properly say that. I'm just going to say it the way I do. I love when people correct my pronunciation on things. I absolutely love it. Um, People keep trying. The same person keeps. Uh, yeah. No, if you really want to get on my nerves, that's actually from a great way to get on my nerves. Brian Downey says a set of a contest position looks increasingly attractive by the day. Ecumenism is contrary to Catholicism and it gets the word conversion. Ecumenism equates to heresy, right? The only ecumenism that actually makes any sense is one that works to end schisms. That's the only one that makes any sense. While understanding that the, pap the, the, the papacy is true and everything that goes with that, including the teaching authority of popes, the implication of teaching authority of popes, and all the rest of it. All right. Do we have any final thoughts on any of the comments? We, uh, things are going, this is one of those stories. Like I had a different story plan for today and I'll probably have to do it tomorrow. Although I, on my live streams on Sundays at Ball still talk news. I still want to try to keep it down a little bit because it's a Sunday. Let's see. Do I think Francis plans to rescind the Holy Order, the declaration of Leo the 13th? I doubt it. It, it wouldn't surprise me. Nothing surprises me anymore, but it wouldn't surprise me if he did, but it would all, but at the same time, I think he's got other things to worry about. Roseanne Rossi says when she reads about Bishop Snyder's life, it gives her great hope. Um, yeah, he had, he has one of those life stories that is fascinating and it's the kind that makes for future saintly pontiffs. If he's ever in a position to become anything other than an auxiliary Bishop. Something that bothers me is the commission of Catholics and Anglicans in Paris, right? Uh, the, the bishops working together. Yeah, that's, it's a, you know, an Anglican bishop and a Catholic bishop working together as partners, essentially, almost as if they're co-equals. That's fascinating too. Aren't Catholic altars consecrated for all things Catholic? Why are we lending our consecrated altars out to, it's a good question. And as someone else, when I mentioned this story, what was happening here a few days ago in a live stream, it was pointed out that we are absolutely going to have to have St. Peter, St. Bartholomew, St. John Lateran all reconsecrated in the future by a holy pope. That is going to have to happen. The Pacamama thing. I mean, I'll, I mean, it's probably more than that, too. I would expect that if we really went through all the ecumenical things that happened. We would, uh, going back to at least 2013, if not before, we would see that pretty much all that, every basilica in Rome would have to be reconsecrated. All right, folks. Am I going to, to Kennedy's Canadian Conference? I am not. Uh, I need a one. I would need to update my passport, too. I'm not in any physical condition to be doing a lot of traveling right now, unfortunately. As I've uh, spoken about before, 2023 was really rough on my health, and I ended up gaining a whole lot of weight really quickly. And I'm struggling to try to get rid of it, unfortunately. So I'm not in a position to travel. All right, folks. Thank you very much for tuning in today. If you have any further thoughts, this is the time to get them in. Otherwise, I would suggest you pray for everybody involved in the stories we talked today, about today, for the conversion of those who Francis is working with for whatever reason, and for the um, the ending of that schism was a valid thing to pray for, and of course, for Francis himself. All right. Thank you very much, folks. Stop eating carbs. I am on a near-zero carb diet, so yeah, it's just, it's just not working. So anyway, thank you very much folks for tuning in. And as always pray for the church. I'm Anthony Stein. 
Ave Maria.